If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 8 where we left off uh, at verse 7 last week. Um, we are continuing to consider uh, life between two worlds. Uh, we're looking at what it means, basically, what it means to follow Christ. Those who follow Him, we have found, are people who have been sovereignly called by God. They have been saved by God. They are strangers or aliens in this world. And I believe that our lives as believers should look as strange to the world in many ways as uh, an alien from outer space might would look to us. We're just different and should be different. They are sovereignly scattered and providentially placed to proclaim the excellencies of Him, meaning the Lord God. We found this in chapter 2, who has called them out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Now, I want us to pause there for just a moment for those who may be joining us for the first time in this series to explain what that means. Well, Peter is writing in this letter to men and women who have been saved by the grace of God through the atoning work of Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And his death and his resurrection secured the certain hope that he speaks of throughout this letter, a certain hope in the fact that they have eternal life and will, after they die physically, at the return of Christ, will be raised like him to live with Him in what the Scripture says is a new heaven and a new earth. And that is the place they call home. So we are talking about two worlds, the world in which we live in here and the new heaven and the new earth. We're living between that. Now, I know that sounds strange and maybe even far-fetched for some. But I want you to encourage you to not pass that by and pass it off too quickly. The Bible clearly unveils this truth. And when we see it in its context, it really doesn't sound all that strange and extreme. And thinking about the difference between the two worlds, I was reminded by David Helm this week uh, to give a little attention to Bob Dylan. Some of you will appreciate that. Some of you are familiar with Robert Zimmerman. Uh, or better known to the music world as Bob Dylan. Uh, he came on the scene in the early 60s. He's been playing and writing music for about 60 years. He came up during a time when uh, our culture was being challenged, and it was a controversial time in the United States and in the world. And as he noted in one of his hit songs, the times are changing. Well, they were a changing then, and they are still a changing. And most of his music was intended to draw people's attention to the changing times. And there were some things taking place that uh, would become better in some ways. And there was a whole lot that would not become better, would become worse, and even in some cases lost. But in one of his songs, uh, The Ballad of a Thin Man. Has anybody ever heard, remember hearing The Ballad of a Thin, Thin Man? Okay, some of you are raising your hands. You've listened to Bob Dylan, Okay. Well, he recounts the situations in the life of a man that he calls Mr. Jones. And he repeated this chorus through this six-minute song, and it's like it's never going to end. But this is the chorus that continually is repeated. Because something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Something's happening the world is changing. Values are being lost. Things are shifting. But you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? In other words, Mr. Jones was having all of these things come toward him in the way of questions, and he was asking all these questions, but he never really caught on to what was taking place. Well, in many ways, that idea reflects the world of believers in Peter's day in that times were a-changing and in some ways, they knew what was going on, and in other ways, they didn't. And things are still that way with us. Times are changing. The question is, is are we observant about what's taking place? Do we know what's taking place? But more than that, 
do we appear to the world as changing as believers and our people are aware of that kind of change in us? The believer is called to walk and to live in a changing world between these two worlds. And the question is, is how different is the believer? How different are you if you are one who professes Christ? Well, two weeks ago, we began to explore, after, after hearing about what Peter has to say in general, we began to narrow down what it is that is to be different and what is fundamentally different about believers. And that is, they have a spirit of humility. In other words, the mark of a believer is a heart of humility. A heart of humility that leads to submission. Not a submission out of weakness, but a submission out of strength. And we have rehearsed that, but we began to see that we are to, as believers, at a heart of humility, we are to submit to the civil authorities. And we submit to the civil authorities, not because they lord over us, we submit to the civil authorities because God has placed them over us. And then we found that not only do we submit to the civil authorities in a spirit of humility, but we submit to the leadership and direction given by those who were in authority over us in our workplaces. Why? Because God has placed them there. doesn't mean that they're right all the time. It may even mean that they're wrong most of the time. And maybe you think that the person in authority over you is wrong and that you can do it better. And you probably can. But as a believer, we in a heart and a spirit of humility because of our love to God and our love for Him and our longing to make a difference in the lives of those around us, we submit to those authorities. And in the last week, we saw how that submission carries over into the home with the submission of the wife to the husband and the husband to the wife in different ways, but still approaching each other in the context of that relationship uh, in a spirit of humility. And today we turn our attention to this same attitude of humility as we consider how we relate to each other here in the body of Christ. And then beyond that, what does that look like? Not just what it should look like as we step into the world. So let's look, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and an humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing for, and now we're going back to Psalm 34, okay? Peter quotes Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, uh, than for doing evil. Now I want you to remember that we have been arguing that our heart and our attitude toward a lost world will ultimately look no different, hear that again, will look no different than our attitude in the context of our church relationship. I want you to hear this. Think about this a minute. If we are cold and indifferent toward one another, then we will be cold and indifferent to a lost world. 
If our desire is to stand at arm's length relationally in the body of Christ, then we're not engaged to people in our communities, but we'll remain strangers to them. If we don't fellowship together, don't spend time with each other as family members, but we remain isolated, then we will not invite our neighbors into our homes and our lives. We might invite them to come to the church, but if we're not willing to invite them into our lives and into our homes, then what is the chance of them coming to worship and gather with more people just like us? If we do not forgive differences and offenses in our relationships in the body of Christ, then we'll not be loving and kind to those who already hate the Lord, the Scriptures tell us, and therefore will hate us if we resemble the Lord. That's the whole point. That's the reason for persecution. They hate God. They see believers who resemble God. Therefore, they hate believers. And if we don't forgive our differences and we're not kind and loving here in, in trying to reconcile relationships and to help each other along in that, uh, then um, how are we going to do any different in the world? If we do not sacrifice for one another in this context, in the context of a local body, then we will not be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the loss. It's just a given. We can say these things, we can talk about them, but they will not become a reality in our lives. The point that Peter has been making is a changing heart is being forged in the context of the body of Christ and the relationships that exist in the local church. It's what we call sanctification. I'm not saying that it's the only place that sanctification can take place. And when we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about the ongoing change in a believer's heart, the ongoing spiritual growth in a believer's heart where this individual is being changed, being conformed into the image of Christ. And I'm not saying it can't take place and that some of it doesn't take place outside of the context of the local body, but by God's design, it takes place in the context of the local body. This is why being a part of a local body, a local church, committed to the relationships in the local church. It's the reason why they're so important. I want to encourage you. If you profess Christ and you're not currently a part of a local body, don't delay making that a priority. Because if you are delaying to make that a priority, then what is happening in the course of that, you are stifling your sanctification. You're stifling your spiritual growth. Why? Because most likely you are not living it out. It's not being forged out in the context of real relationships and a family relationship. And if you desire to know more about Oak Valley Church, then let me know or Adam or Booney or ask one of our other members and they'll point you to us. We want to speak to you about church membership. It's important if you're a believer. And if you're an unbeliever, and haven't yet professed Christ, we want to speak to you about Christ. Because the first relationship is a relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then our relationship in the context of the local body where we live life and do life together. So we've already said that the central to our witness in this world is the love that we have for one another in the body of Christ. And don't forget what Jesus said to his disciples. We hear it quoted a lot, but listen to it in this context. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's what he meant. And remember, he said that, that this is a new commandment. How was it new? Well, it was new because he was modeling before them in his life here and was getting ready to do the big thing and sacrifice himself on the cross for our sins and their sin. And he said, this is what is new about this commandment, is that you will love each other like I love you. You will love each other like I love you.
So let's look at the text. What does it have to say to us today? Well, look at verse 8. Finally, you remember we have heard likewise, likewise, and now he's getting ready to conclude, but he's saying likewise, I'm going to nail this down, likewise, finally, all of you, all of who? Well, all of Peter's audience, who were they? Well, they were those that God had sovereignly saved. He had called them. They were strangers. They were aliens. They were sovereignly scattered. And for them, in most cases, not all, they were sovereignly suffering. If you caught on to it this morning, what we've been singing about suffering and hardship and the God that we look to and the reason why we suffer and the reason why we are called to suffer. Why? Because that's what believers should be prepared to do. They should be prepared uh, to suffer. So he's talking to believers, and then he gives five things. Now, uh, you may want to do this, but I want you to look in your text, in the Scripture, and I want you to look at this. He gives five things. So if you have five things, that means you can have a middle, right? You can have two on one side and two on the other, and there's one in the middle, I want you to go to the middle one because as I kept dealing with this text, I kept saying, this makes perfect sense. Everything flows out of loving as family. So what do we have? If you looked at those five things, you have the very first one that is about the mind or the way that we think. The very last one is about our mind and the way that we think. Then the two stacked up into the center, toward that center, are about how we feel. And then in the middle of that, we have the love that we have for each other. Love that we have for each other in the context of our family. That's what he's pointing to. Now, again, everything else that we'll do in the world will flow out of that. But it centers with our family relationship here in the life of the body of Christ. So now we'll start at the first one and we'll work through, but I hope you already have in your mind that the middle one is brotherly love. Brotherly love guides our thinking, brotherly love guides our feeling. So what does he say? He says this, he said, have unity of mind. He's not talking about conformity to something. He does have in his mind a broad piece here that we believe the things in common. In other words, we believe the gospel. But it's more than that. He's talking about harmony in the body of Christ. Harmony in the body of Christ that is driven by love. There will not be harmony in the body of Christ if there is not love. There will not be harmony in our relationships if there's not love. It centers in that peace, okay? It centers in that peace, but it does speak of the harmony that we have. Paul wrote something about that to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. He said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, I want you to hear that, worthy of the gospel. So our life is going to be, if, it's, if it is going to be worthy of the gospel in the way that we live, it's going to look like this. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. In other words, you're standing in harmony. You're living in harmony with one another. With one mind, he says. Striving side by side. It's kind of locked together, okay? Not, not at a distance, but we are interlocked together. Our arms locked together. Something like you see sometimes when you're watching rugby, how they'll lock their arms together and they are a force, they're a wall. That's what he's talking about. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we'll talk some more about fear in just a moment. But he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Why? Because we're interlocked together. We're not alone. We are with each other, with the gospel at our heart, and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are. And listen, I know that sounds churchy to a lot of us, but that is how the body of Christ is to be seen, as a force in this world. Walking in humility, but locked together, not alone. And then Paul said, but of your salvation, 
uh, and from that of God. In other words, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, not yours, of their destruction and your salvation and that from God. Notice now we move to feeling. So the mind is established. We look to feeling. Sympathy is not a fault. It is an emotion. It's a feeling. What does Peter have in mind here? Well, I think he has in mind that we are to be sensitive and caring toward each other, sharing an, an emotional bond and a tie to each other. We're sympathetic toward each other. We walk with each other through hardship. We pray with each other. We encourage each other. That's what we do in the body of Christ. That's the reason that those who are outside of church membership who profess Christ, it's, they're just kind of dangling out there. They're supposed to be interlocked and tied together where they have brothers and sisters who are praying for them and encouraging them and helping them along because they are missing the sympathy. They're missing what the body of Christ brings to the picture of their life and to their sanctification. So right now, if you are disconnected in some way from the body of Christ, there is something that is missing in your life. And it may be that you are a professing believer, but you don't have your brothers and sisters. You don't have your family around you encouraging you and helping you along the way. But not only that, but it's also pressing in on us maybe who are not sensitive, who are not caring, who are not in tune with the hardship and the struggles and the suffering that going on in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. What is he talking about? He said we come alongside of each other. We come alongside of each other. And we battle with each other. Like Jesus did. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have one like that. Here's what we have. But in Christ we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in the centerpiece, notice what he says. He says, brotherly love. Well, what does he mean there? What does that mean, brotherly love? It means unselfish, surf, un unselfish service. Unselfish service. Loving each other and serving each other again in this context. And listen, we can talk about serving outside of this community. We will not be of service to this community if we are unwilling to serve each other. It won't happen. It won't happen in the genuine sense of to the end to care about the souls of those we are serving. Service is not about doing something for someone else. It is ultimately about serving them because we care about their souls. That's the reason that um, the social gospel would not work, doesn't work. The social gospel doesn't lead people to Christ. We feed, yes. We take care of human needs, yes. We need to do that. But at the end of the day, those needs can be met, as we have heard before and we know. And we know this is true because we have seen people that have been cared for and served but never to the end of them hearing the gospel, never to the end of their salvation, never to the end of them spending eternity with God. No, it takes care for the soul, and loving in the body of Christ means that we care for each other's souls. And how do we show that? We unselfishly serve in the same way that the church did for Paul. Here's what he had to say when writing to the Philippians. He said, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving 
except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. In other words, they, un they unselfishly served Paul because they cared about his soul. They took care of his needs. They took care of his needs. That's the reason we share our needs with each other in the body of Christ. And there should be an expectation in the course of that. Listen, sharing your need is not a matter of weakness. In fact, it is an act of humility to share our needs, to bear our souls, to let folks know about our lives and our ups and our downs. We already know that we are not all strong and stalwart. We know that. We may carry ourselves in a way that would make everybody think that everything is squared away in my life. But it ain't so. It ain't so. Everything's not squared away in all of our lives. We hurt, we suffer, we struggle, we're weak, we're sinful. A lot of times our lives are a mess, a mess that we really don't want anyone else to see. But if we don't let someone see some of that mess, then how are we going to be encouraged and helped? And that's the purpose there, the point. And then he says this. Uh, he's, he's, this is, this is, it seems to be broad sweeping, but he's getting ready to drive home a point here. The next he moves to feeling again. Uh, tender. We're to be tender. What does that mean? It means to be kind-hearted. It means to be affected by the pain of others to the degree that you feel it yourself. I want you to think for just a minute about your feeling someone else's pain. Now, if I smash my finger, you're not going to feel the pain in the smash of my finger. But in the midst of my suffering and struggle, whether it be with cancer, whether it be with hardship with a son or a daughter or a grandchild, whether it be as we walk through grief and we see the sadness and the heaviness this is all in the context of the body of Christ. What do we do? Well, we are tender-hearted toward that. We feel that pain. And then notice goes back to thinking again, the way our minds work. What are we doing? We're humble-minded. In other words, we're humble-spirited. We're humble-minded and humble-spirited. Thinking less and less and less of ourselves along the way of our life. And what? And if we're thinking less of ourselves, then we're replacing that by thinking more of others. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, put it this way. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay, now this is at least in part that what it means when we take his yoke upon us. And learn from me, he said, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. In other words, I am humble-minded and spirited. We take that on, humble-minded and spirited. And he says, and in that, we would think that that would become a position of weakness, a hardship, a difficulty that would cause us turmoil. But that is not what Jesus said. He said, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. Now look in verse 9. Now, Here's how that's fleshed out, okay? With that attitude, it starts with our attitude, starts with the very center of our hearts, moving back through the way that we feel and we think in all directions about our life and about others, then notice what he says. This is how it's fleshed out. And it's, it's, it's incredible. So therefore, what do you not do? Well, you don't repay evil for evil, which is most of the time our first inclination. You inflict pain upon me, and then I do what? If I am prideful and I am thinking about me, then I'm going to seek to inflict pain upon you. I'm going to seek to inflict pain upon you that is worse than the pain you inflicted upon me because I have no sense of fair measure in the course of that. I have already proven that in the course of my life and in my pride. No, in humility, 
in humility, it is fleshed out. No, I don't, I don't repay evil for evil, and I don't revile for reviling. Peter says, on the contrary, here's what we do. We bless. We bless. Why? For this is what you were called to do. How do we know that? Well, back up in chapter 2. And here's what he has to say there. Verse 20. For what credit is if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. You have been called. And to what? And to be a blessing and to bless others, you have been called. Okay? And it doesn't mean that unbelievers can't bless you in some ways. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a heart and a spirit that is given because the Spirit of God lives in the life of a believer and he or she is being conformed into the image of Christ and therefore are seeking to follow him by looking to him. We sang a hymn while ago that a lot of us hadn't sang in a long time. We've been a long time since we have, I can't remember when the last time I, I sang Living for Jesus. Living for Jesus. What does it mean to live for Jesus? Well, it means in this case that we're living lives that are called, one, not to return evil for evil, okay? And not to revile because we have been reviled. In other words, we, we don't do because someone else has done to us. We bless them. Our life is meant to be a blessing. That is what we are called for in the same way that Christ was called to be a blessing. And he lived out of the context of that call. That's how he lived. That's how he, that's how he moved. That's how he operated. Then notice... You are called to be a blessing. And then he says that you may obtain a blessing. He's not talking about their blessing for blessing. He's not, not a motive here. This blessing that he's talking about here, we are called to bless. We ultimately are blessed. What is the blessing that we get? Well, there are the eternal blessings and then there are the temporal blessings. That's what is Peter talking about? Well, since we have the eternal blessing, that is secure. What blessing is that? We'll turn back over to chapter 1 and we'll hear it. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Remember, we talked about this hope just a little bit ago. Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And we said that God keeps that. So it's not going to be taken away. So our living, being called to blessing others, is not a means to earn our salvation. It is what we do when we are following Jesus and being conformed into his image. Blessing rather than cursing. Loving rather than hating. And then we know that we're talking about temporal blessings now. What does that look like? Well, let's look because he refers back to the psalmist, Psalm 34. says, so whoever desires to love life, okay? In other words, whoever, decide, whoever desires to live life in peace, okay? not about loving the things of this world. It's about living in peace. Uh, who, who doesn't want to live in peace? Who wants to be in turmoil? Who wants their lives turned upside down all the time? Who wants to be in conflict with someone all the time? Who wants to push against people all the time? Who wants to be arguing most of the time? Well, none of us. None of us. And if we have a bent toward that, if that's our heart, if that's what we want, that's what we want. 
I can already know that you don't have peace in your life and you are struggling because what you are seeking to do is to be at odds with everyone. And that is not the life of a believer. That's Peter's point. We're, he's going to point to this, live in peace and harmony with each other. But listen to what he says. He said, if, the psalmist said, if we desire to love life and see good days. And he's not talking about riches and wealth. He's just talking about living out days in peace. Well, then let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So we're talking about his life now. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And then here's what he says. And, and this, is, this, is, this is point on right here. The psalmist says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Now doesn't that sound a little bit about what we heard last week? What did we hear last week about the husband? We'll turn back over to chapter 3 there. We're in chapter 3. Turn back over there in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, sensitivity again, sympathy, care, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you. In other words, since they have the same inheritance as you. They're, if they're believers, they're going to the same. They're, they're going to receive the same inheritance that you're going to receive. You're going to. They're they're equal to you spiritually. In other words, you're they're your sister in Christ, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And here we prayer comes up again. Why? For the eyes of the Lord in verse twelve. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. So part of that blessing is in the course of seeking to live peacefully and peaceably, and that's done in the context of whether we're being antagonized or not, whether we're being hated or not, whether we're being loved or not, we are seeking to live with that kind of sensitivity and care. That's what we're doing as believers. That's the life of a believer between these, between these two worlds. And then God listens to our prayers. But notice the last part. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if, if, if as a believer, if our lives are bent toward antagonism, if our lives are bent toward unforgiveness, if our lives are bent in these kinds of ways that are not in the image of Christ, that they're, they're not being conformed to the image of Christ, then just know that, that God while he may have saved you, uh, there is going to be a lack of this blessing of peace and harmony in your life. Okay? That's the picture of our life here in this body. Meaning that that gives us a framework for doing relationships in this body. And should be true in every local body and should be true as we give consideration to the larger context of the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not beating their drum, but I just want to say that again. We are here today because there was a part of the larger church context that operated with the mindset of sympathy and care and sensitivity and in humility, we are here today because of that. Because it fleshed out in their lives to say, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have a need, let's bless them. Let's bless them. Not because they were seeking to get a blessing, but because they had a deep love for God and His Word and the Gospel. So we've seen that firsthand. Now, let's think about our own lives personally for just a minute before we move on. How are we seeking to bless each other here in this body? How are we seeking to, to care for and to love and to walk alongside of each other in this body? I, I know you are because I see those things, but I want us to press deeper into that because that needs to be the ringing sound in the course of this body. Not just a place to come gather and hear 
maybe a good sermon or maybe a not so good sermon or hear some great music every week. It's not to come and attend a children's ministry. All that stuff is just consumer minded. Set all of that aside. How are we going to do life together in more rich and deeper ways? Now it turns out because when that's taking place in the body, here's what's going to happen. Look in verse 13. And it seems like he's making an abrupt change here, but he's not. It's still about living between two worlds. And now here is where, again, we are, we are coming together to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in the context of the body of Christ as the gospel infiltrates our lives. Now we move outside of that. And what does that look like in the world? And then he says this. He turns back to this thing of suffering. Okay. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It's a rhetorical question. Who's going to harm you? Paul says in a slightly different way, but in Romans chapter 8, he says what? He said, what's going to separate you from the love of God? Who can ultimately harm you? Jesus pointed back when they were looking at their suffering and their persecution. He said, you you, you better be fearful and mindful of the one who can not only kill you physically, but who ultimately deals with you in eternity. And he's talking about God. So who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, what? you will be blessed. So we already know that the blessings of blessing others does not remove the possibility of our suffering. It doesn't remove the possibility of persecution. It doesn't mean if we do real well in here and we do real well out there that somehow everything's going to be okay for the believer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, we bless others, even those who are against us, even those who have strife with us, even those who struggle and push against us. We bless them because that's who we are in Christ, and that's how we operate in Christ. And it may mean more suffering for us. But even that suffering is what? What does it say? That Suffering is a blessing. It's a blessing. Lack of struggle and hardship does not equal peace. It doesn't equal contentment. What equals peace and equals contentment is blessing others out of our love for God. And then notice what it says. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We're talking about in the world now. And it should be, we shouldn't have any fear of each other here in the body of Christ. For sure. We're brothers and sisters. And we may fight and squabble a little bit. We all have at some point in time. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we come back together and we hug and we love each other and we move on because we're family and we are locked together. But he says, don't even fear those who are outside of the body of Christ nor be troubled. And here is, here is the counter to fear. He's getting ready to give this to us. Look, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honoring Christ Him being first and foremost in our lives sets aside fear and enables us to do what? Here's the other thing. Catch this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So honoring Christ brings hope and drives away fear. We have no fear of anyone or anything. We are clinging to the hope. And what is that hope? Well, back up again in chapter 1. We don't want to lose our bearing. 
What is that hope? Look in verse, the last part of verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is, listen, and that's the reason he says this on the front end. That is what? Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's our hope. That's our hope. So we have hope when we are focused on Christ. We sang earlier today, wonderful, merciful Savior. We are looking at the hope that rests in Him. Yet not I, but through Christ who lives in me, our our hope is centered on Him, and therefore there is no fear. And now we give a defense for it. How do we prove, how do we show, how do we resemble the fact that we have hope and there is no fear? When we are navigating through the hardships and struggles of this life between two worlds, and we are doing it walking in the spirit of humility. Taking whatever it is that comes, blessing God for it, then blessing others in the midst of even our own sufferings and our struggles and our hardships. We are blessing others, and then what does the world do? Well, the world looks at that and says, that's a Martian there. That sure enough is an alien, because I ain't seen nothing like that. That's nothing like me. That's what the world does. And then what is the what comes out of that? Why are you that way? Why did you treat me that way? Why did you love me when I hated you? You remember the soldier standing at the foot of the cross, and when Jesus died, he said what? He said, surely this must be the Son of God. After he died, he said, surely this must be the Son of God. Why? Because Jesus hung there on that cross, never cursed, never reviled, was being cursed. But what did he say? Father, forgive them. He was praying on their behalf for their forgiveness, for their coming to see God for who He is, even in His own suffering. And the soldier was there, started out with his hand being one that most likely helped raise the cross, to look to Christ and said, surely this is the Son of God. Humility and submission to those things and the course of our lives and to each other are the marquee sign of this is someone who is different. And seeing the peace, seeing the peace in a person's life, and when we're in a world that is so far different, and Mr. Jones doesn't recognize what's going on, but says, even ask the question, why are you this way? And what do we do? We give a defense for that hope. It's incredible, isn't it? And what does it say in gentleness and respect? Why would it say gentleness and respect? Because that would be the true nature of the person who's walking in humility. If it was anything less than that, if it was... Uh, and, and I will say this again, and I'm, I'm not a, I, I'm, I'm, it's going to sound condemning. I don't mean it to, but I just say in this in honesty. All this Bible thumping, beating people over the head kind of thing in a spirit of pride, shouting that they're going to go to hell. And, and I think that there is a place for us to do fair warning. But when we're warning people of the suffering and the hardship and the eternal suffering that is coming, man, it should be done with a broken heart. Again, with gentleness and respect. Then notice what else it says there. So that, 
when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean talking about shaming them and beating them down. What Peter is talking about is so that they see all the way up to the end of the cross, they are able to look back. Surely, this must be a child of God because no one else would have done this. I wished I had had no part of bringing suffering on them. And then finally, in verse 17, Peter says, and, and this is a central truth, so hold on to this. We'll talk more about it next week when we move to verse 18. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will. In other words, not all of us are going to suffer in the same way. Not all of us are going to be persecuted in the same way. Not all of us are going to be are going to face hardship in the same way. It won't matter. It won't matter. That's not the point. The point is for us to live the life that God has put in front of us, walking in a spirit of humility. That is what will gain the attention of this community. It'll gain the attention of your family. And it'll gain the attention of others who profess Christ, but see a noticeable difference between you and them. And that is not so much to shame them, but to help model for them. And that's what we do here, and model for each other what it means to follow Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge today that we certainly will not be effective in proclaiming your excellencies, one who has called us out of darkness into light. Apart from walking and living in humility before each other in this world, you over again have spoken to us about this. Jesus has, the prophets have, The apostles have, the writers of Scripture have, and your Spirit even now speaks to us because we are prone to be prideful. And if we are prideful before each other, we certainly, Father, recognize it will be prideful before you. Father, would you grant us grace today in breaking our hearts of this that we would walk and deal with each other in this body in a way we are loving and kind and sensitive and caring and then even beyond that. And then for those, Father, who are in need of a church home, would you direct their hearts to make that a priority? And for those, Father, here today who have not yet trusted you, be gracious to them and call them to salvation according to your will in Christ's name. Amen.